All right. I think Fro's here. Can you hear us, Fro? Is your uh, tech working this week? For the moment, for the moment, it is. Can you hear me? Groovy. I would just like to get the um, the uh, <clears throat> grift started and uh, let everybody know that I am a drinking Keeper's Heart Irish and bourbon and would love a sponsorship. So just throwing that out there. Nice, nice. I'm, I was at a grift. <laughs> <laughs> I'm drinking Uncle Uncle Val's gin, which Sophie got me for Christmas in order to make some uh, gin cocktails. But I'm just drinking it straight because it tastes really nice. I am. I'm just drinking wild turkey because I'm a man. <laughs> Fair. A poor one, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kip, oh, welcome to off. You're the host this week, apparently. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, I want to give Fro a chance for redemption, and I want to kick off with uh, the comment you made in the chat about bear market investing and Fed involvement, <laughs> and I just wanted to hear you flesh that out a bit. Yeah, uh, first of all, you know, not investment advice. And I have really um, probably an almost criminally simple-minded approach to investing. So just as disclaimer, I want to say that. But what I will say is right now, perhaps the greatest indication is of what's going on is if a stock has does not have a P.E. ratio, as in like not a, a positive one anyway, or a div yield, it has to have at least one of those for me to be interested in it at this point. Um, and the reason for that is basically... Can you flesh both of those right things now, out for listeners? Yeah. Yeah, so the P.E. ratio on a stock is the price of the... It's the ratio of the price of the stock to the earnings of the company. So when you have startup companies, things like... Um, I think Uber is still in this category. Um, Robin Hood is probably still in this category. Airbnb is probably still in this nah, category. When both, you have both Airbnb and Uber actually cut and started posting profits like crazy this year. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's when you have a sort of a new fresh growing company, um, that isn't yet profitable because they're so focused on expansion and market share. Um, they will have negative earnings cause they're spending more than they take in. And so they will, um, their price, Price of the stock to earnings ratio will be negative, um, and div div yield is just dividend yield. It's the um, it's the percent, if I recall correctly, it's the percent of the stock price paid in dividends annually. Um, and once again, that's a that's something that characteristically only uh, established companies will do because they have the they have the uh, cash flow in order to maintain and expand the company and still have uh, extra profit to distribute to shareholders. So right now, if you look at a, so I guess I'm using both of those measurements, the absence of both of those measurements, you know, no dividend yield and no positive price to earnings ratio as an indication that um, a stock is a speculative growth stock. Um, And the fact is that that's true all the time. Um, but the real angle where the Fed comes in is the fact that the Fed's inflationary practices for uh, decade-long stints at a time make cash 
um, they t- turn the normal use of cash, which is a store of value on its head and make it a very unattractive place to keep to store value. And they make debt very appealing. Um, I'm sorry. I got to pause uh, you right there because I'm perturbed by your statement that cash is a store of value. That's the craziest it's, thing it, I've ever heard anyone's. It's meant to be. That's one of the uses of money. No. In monetary. Wrong. Wrong. Absolutely. Fiat like money historic. is never a store yeah, no, of that's value. What I'm At best, that's what I'm it is an exchange of value. I think we're I think we're talking past each other. This my I'm speaking about money as it sort of should be in the abstract or is in theory. One of the that's historical okay. uses of money is as a store of value. And that's that's something that the Fed's um funny business in the market undermines and makes it it makes it not a good store of value because you don't want your money to be in something that's uh, degenerating over time. Okay. I'm um, but for, you know, a couple of years, every, every 10 or 20, they put us into a deflationary spell where cash is actually gaining purchasing power over time as they remove money from the market. And for those couple of year periods, cash is an attractive place to park funds. Um, and so a, uh, and all all the funds that flow into speculative assets, like new growth companies, um, tend to flow out when people are uh, down to the wire, when they're running out of savings and their expenses are increasing. So you have a combined uh, sort of twofold pressure against growth stocks in a bear market or a deflationary environment. I guess I'm using those terms pretty interchangeably where speculative forces are driven out by economic necessity and cash becomes a very, um, it, it becomes an important consideration again. And so, so a, a company with a dividend yield becomes a lot more attractive. So, but the thought that you that you would um, sort of blindly and instinctively gravitate towards companies that don't have a positive price to earnings ratio or a div yield normally when the Fed's in an inflationary environment is it's ridiculous if it weren't for the economic system that we have where um, the Fed's printing of money is going to fuel speculative um, speculative investing and drive prices of of speculative assets up and where cash is worth less. Sorry, that was pretty rambling. Um, not very concise, but that's, that's why that's the th- reasoning behind that comment. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I don't really have anything to add to that. Isaiah, do you have anything that you want to tease? Well, it, it definitely is interesting to me to think about small periods in the market in which there, we get a glimpse of what an economy without fed movements is like not that we're not living in a time with fed movements but that the the fed is more like acting it's it's forcing currency to act more like money than it has previously and so you see i'm just shocked at the amount of like rationality that is sweeping the market on on every front like suddenly well i i am shocked and also i'm shocked to see it um not because it shouldn't happen but because it should and i'm happily surprised but I'm also seeing plenty of places where it's not, and that's always entertaining. Yeah, I'm seeing quite a few people who are still not quite understanding it. Yeah, I think 
I will actually jump in on that, Isaiah, because I agree and I disagree. Um, so I I wouldn't go as far as to say a um, a market where the Fed is raising rates um, and co- constricting the money supply is a market in which the dollar is acting like money is supposed to um, because money is supposed to be relatively stable. Um, it's supposed to be equivalent to the amount of effort that is, is required to create it. Um, it seems like you're saying, well, or... it, obviously it's not creating like long-term stability, but, but it's, um, it's acting like money in a short window. And people are obviously well, I, assuming I actually, that at some point it's not going to act like money anymore. But there's a okay. window of time. I, I think to a very limited extent that's true um, in the sense of for a short period of time, um, like, for example, I have cash in my safe, which I would never have done a couple of years ago, right? So, like, th- there is a sense in a very limited sense in which that's true where money does become a store of value for a short time horizon. So that I absolutely grant. And and I do think that it's interesting to see um, some rationality returning to the market. I also agree with that. But where I would push back, and you didn't really say this, but I just want to push back here in case there was an implication, um, which is that what I don't think is happening is uh, money becoming valuable again for to put it concisely, actually constricts in the long-term growth. It only does that in the short term because people know in 18 months, 24 months, 36 months, there's going to be plenty of funny money again. So they have to be austere for a short period of time. But it's not actually like it's not actually changing how people function. It's it's always a short-term decision. Does that make sense? Well, I just think that people like pricing cash higher has caused uh, decision making to act more like it would in in a normal money environment, like in a gold based environment. So you are just you, you're basically you don't have this massive. You're not going to have thousands of extra employees if your money is right. actually worth. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I, I understand that we're seeing that growth. in. Yeah. Uh, sure. Okay. I, I well, get that. Specifically, but I... specifically, the thing that's interesting to me in like the VC and startup space is just that there's not this massive, massive pressure to deploy. Previously, there was huge pressure to deploy coming from like two places. One is like FOMO, and the other is de- like inflationary monetary environment. So if you raise, you know, a billion dollar round, you are just losing money you like you're holding on to money you're losing it so you have to keep deploying you have to find places to write checks like softbank was kind of like the this like grand um brouhaha where like billions and billions of dollars were lost basically just because they had to deploy so much money at such great speed and there's this huge pressure to do it so rather than sit on your powder and, and look for good opportunity it was just like deploy 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 that's almost gone, like almost completely gone. And I think that is more of a normal environment. So when, when Fro wrote that in the group chat, I was like, oh, that's that's actually kind of interesting. This is sort of a flavor of like a normal monetary environment investing, uh, like flavor of what it would be like to be an entrepreneur. 
in that environment. And the second part that was just interesting to me is like how there's still like a cadre of people who have not figured it out yet and, and are still operating under the old rules. There's one company in particular that I advise that is just like, there's, there's just not yet the connection of like, oh, you don't raise rounds without traction anymore. Like there's, there's like real like revenue that has to be seen to go and raise another round. And that's different. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly see where you're coming from, uh, but I, is, is my point making sense that the austerity measures, so to speak, that um, companies that have been through, you know, let's say they just finished series C, they finished it just in time and they've got what they thought was a year's worth of runway or six months worth of runway. And they're finding out that they have to stretch it out to 24, 30, 36 months. Right. Um, there, there are certainly a lot of com companies doing that. And I think that that's uh, wise. And there are also a lot of examples. I mean, Google just laid off what? Uh, 50,000 employees. No, no, just 12. So I thought it was 10, 12. It was 10. Okay. Maybe it was Microsoft. Oh, I think. Did no, no, sorry. Yeah, it was. It was a total riff this last week of fifty thousand. Uh, like across employees. big tech. Across big tech, yeah. Um, so obviously there are big riffs going on, and I would say ninety-nine percent of those are riffs that should have taken place, even even in just a normal normal bull market. Uh, there there were people just not doing doing work. But, I actually um, disagree with that. Oh, go ahead and finish. Well, yeah, okay. I'd love to hear hear your uh, counter on that. But so there. Go ahead, Fro. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Uh, so there, there definitely was bloat, um, and I'm not arguing that. You know, you see all of these a day in the life of a product manager at Meta Videos Online. It's just, um, yeah, it's it's laughable, but. Um, there's a lot of it, I think is, I don't know if it's totally justifiable, but it's much more justifiable in a bull market because of, um, just relative utility. So you can have cash and if you're sitting on cash and it's just disappearing, um, at percents per year, um, that is going to give you, that's even a couple percent per year is going to m measurably impact your ROI for just holding cash. So if you can find something, anything worthwhile to do with that cash, you know, throw it at any possible um, avenue of exploration. Um, it's, it makes sense. Um, or it has, it has a less relatively hard. Uh, the benchmark that it has to perform better than is easier because inflation is pushing that benchmark down. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally so tracking. Pretty low returning, low returning uh, uses of cash that are going to look better just because inflation is constantly eating away at what you save. Yeah. Well, um, Isaiah, uh, I want to kick it to you on the next topic. Um, so, if you want to talk about labor theory mindset, uh, what's wrong with it? and how that relates to AI. And we can talk about that for a little bit and we can kind of blend that into um, 
the the other discussion of demographics and AI sure. and, and how that impacts the market. Yeah. So obviously, there are people who genuinely believe in the labor theory of value. That's it's like an explicit belief of theirs. And yeah, you want to define it? Sorry for the audience. Yeah. So labor theory of value, right? Is the the idea that things are valuable because people worked. So if you put in an hour of work into something, it necessarily means that that thing is more valuable by one hour. And if you could work your entire life on something, then that thing is innately valuable because somebody worked their entire life on it. And that idea on the face, if you've never really kind of studied economics, sounds really attractive. Uh, the problem is it's just socialism. Like it's the underlying idea of of communism is that you know, the, the nice idea that people deserve to be rewarded for their labor. Yeah. I mean, Karl Marx so, did connect with that idea. So. It, yeah. It's, it's actually the, like the concept emotionally that like people should be rewarded for their labor. Um, I actually don't necessarily have a problem with it in the sense of um, I would like people, you know, I like people working hard. I like the idea of people getting rewarded when they work hard. But when you look at value as an economic reality, it's simply not true. Like people value what they value. Value has its has existence on its own, and uh, work often causes value, but then but it often doesn't. There's, it's not a causal relationship necessarily. Um, it's an ingredient that uh, can cause it, but it's not value itself. So, this is something that you know conservatives or Austrian economic people or you know what have you will deny on paper, but I see it creep into mindsets all over the place. And in particular, um, I have a blog post coming out about this, but basically my, my tagline for this is chat GPT can tell me whether or not you're a communist. And what I mean by that is you will find out a lot of what people actually believe about the nature of value from advances in AI and other like rapidly evolving technologies. But even before a, like proper AI uh, that we're looking at now, 10 years ago when Tesla was starting to tease, you know, self-driving semi-trucks, there was this, um, uh, there was this push from the conservative side against that because they were saying, well, truckers are going to lose their jobs. And that was my first sort of hint that, huh, I wonder if like conservatives in mass actually don't believe in their own economic theories and they, they actually just believe in labor theory. But here we are in full force. ChatGPT is out, and people are kind of getting a taste at, uh, you know, of, of genuine, you know, AI that could be really applied to a lot of different things, and they can see it. And they suddenly are are socialists. Honestly, they they think, oh no, we can't have AI because we're going to lose jobs. Like, who's gonna, you know, who's going to program the computers? Who's going to answer the emails? All of a sudden, people are going to lose their jobs everywhere because their jobs can be done by AI. So first, before I, I think, discuss why that's a really wrong mindset, um, I'll kick it out to you guys and say, like, have you, like, be honest, when you've seen an advance in AI in a particular field, have you had that gut reaction that's like, oh, no? <laughs> uh, I'll start. I was. Yeah, go ahead. Quiet, Jib. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I I have had that reaction, um, to be completely honest. Um, and I, I think you might have said this, Isaiah, that there's a little bit of a commie in each of us. Um, so true. 
and I have I have had and, and to some of us, kill there's a that Kami. Some so. of us is a big fan. Yeah, and and in that person, you just have to throw the whole Kami out of the helicopter, right? You can't just at some point <laughs> you can't just exterminate a portion. At some point, it becomes indistinguishable, and then we have a real. Yeah. Um, yes, I have, but um, I think. The one thing that made it super easy to just kick the Kami out the window completely of my mental picture was realizing that uh, the technology that has been built was built by a thriving um, thriving column of demography. So a, a an economy in which there was there were enough kids and enough young adults to support the technology that was being built. But as that's changed, um, what I'm realizing is AI needs to, needs to happen quick enough so that we can actually maintain 21st century living. It's not, it's not a question of people losing their jobs. I couldn't care less about that at this point. There's, that's not a problem anymore. Um, the problem is going to be, can we still have the internet? with how few people are left to do jobs. But that's kind of shifting into the next topic. So I'll, I'll kick it to Fro and I want to hear what you have to say. Um, I will say that um, I, obviously there's going to be some hint of communism somewhere else in my thinking, but on this, it's really not something that comes into play, probably just because of the really early and um, abundant exposure I had to Austrian economics um, in my curriculum growing up. Um, I mean, this is something that's happened before. This is like people who say, oh no, the truckers are going to lose their jobs are basically echoing the Luddites who didn't like that weaving machines got invented. Um, and to me, yeah, it's it's a matter of... Uh, I just remembered the specific are example. You're so right. Um, I just remember the specific example of my one commie thought about this, and it was crop dusting. I still struggle a little bit with this, I'm not going to lie. But you mean the fact when that drones are, are crop dusting all of the fields? Yeah, when, when drones are crop dusting, I'm like, ah, but crop dusting is so sexy. Like, can't be a yeah, robot that's doing not that. Communism, but... that's nostalgia. That's like, like <laughs> yeah, just true. like we look back at, like, dang, I would love okay. to ride across the plains on a horse with a cowboy hat. Like that's not saying that, you know, the settling of the American West was bad. That's just like, Hey, that was pretty cool. Uh, just mm -hmm. like, you know, you can, I, I think it's possible. Maybe, I mean, you'll have to speak to your own emotional state on this, but like <laughs> I, I think the two are definitely possible. It's possible to just be like, Hey, this is a super cool occupation that's performed by really admirable men with, you know, a lot of courage, a lot of skill, a lot of guts. Um, but, and you kind of hate to see it go, and at the same time not being not thinking that some sort of injustice has been done. But yeah, I I feel like I don't know. I've become extremely hard-hearted. Uh, I could be perceived as hard-hearted on economic matters, um, and I think the Austrian school laid the foundation for that. And then uh, reading Ayn Rand just sort of cemented it. Um, Mm -hmm. That reminds so, yeah. me. Like, we're gonna have to, I think, have I think to have a, a if I could. On Ayn Rand. Oh, what's that? Yeah, oh, absolutely. yeah, for sure. Can we I do think next if I could, episode? 
Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> no, I need to Let's redo it. Third or fourth time before that. But Dude, uh, you've got. I, I think the, you've got two weeks. Easy. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I think the real essence of what drives the specifically conservative negative reaction to AI is the populist element in it. Um, and so populism as a goal is, is a goal for government as in government for the people is, is a good thing. But when it, another side of populism is government by the people and the people are often very short sighted, especially when something is going to cause short term pain in order to generate a long-term benefit. And that's what a superior technology replacing existing jobs does. It hurts in the short term and improves things for the longer stretch. And so I think um, short-sighted populism is just focusing on the negative and missing the positive. So yeah, you're, I mean, you're actually it's... saying that conservatives are populist right now. And, and since they're populist... Well, I'm just saying that the element of conservatism that is driving the negative reaction to AI because of job loss of truckers is the populist element in conservatism. Yeah. Actually, yeah. I think that the argument that the fringe of both parties is populist is spot on. Um, people like Trump yeah. on one side and AOC on the other. I think, I yep. think it is fair to say that both of them were, were are heavily populist and they just come at it in radically different and it's ways. not the fringe at all it's it's actually i would say so if you consider both you know what does bernie sanders say the system is rigged what does trump say the system is rigged um it's a realization on the part of the of the mass i would say of americans that our institutions especially especially our political and economic institutions are completely owned and exercised for the benefit of an elite few and for to the detriment of um, the common the common people of America. And I mean, to be honest, overall, I think I would agree with that statement. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, you have strong elements actually in both parties. They differ on the solutions, but um, to, to go into memes a little bit, the last time you saw left wingers and right wingers and everybody in between all sharing and liking the same kind of memes was when Epstein didn't kill himself memes were popular because regardless of the solution that anybody proposes to the ills besetting our country, everybody acknowledges that there are elites who are not accountable at the top. Yeah, I think that totally makes sense. Isaiah, do you want to wrap us off on this, on this topic? Yeah. Well, the last thing on the, AI thing is in the labor theory mindset. Actually, I want to rewind to the first thing you said, Kip, because it kind of sounded like you were saying that the the reason you're okay with AI is actually that, you know, it's going to save our, our way of life as our demographics degrade. It sounds like what you were saying. And I would mm -hmm. say, okay, fair. But, you know, even if it wasn't, even if we had great demographics and everyone was worried about what what jobs are the kids going to have? I would still say good things are good. Like if you have the ability yeah, to, no, can I, can times... I jump in and clarify there? Yeah. I was just saying, well, that you finish you, up if first, you have though. the ability to make 10 times more bricks with the same tools, you know, with your two hands, you can make a hundred bricks yesterday and you can make a thousand bricks today. That's a good thing. And just because it might have some, you know, there might be some reshuffling of who exactly the brick makers are 
how many of you make bricks, what do get bricks get used for, how many skyscrapers get built. Like there's all sorts of economic implications that are downstream of the fact that everyone can make 10 times the bricks they could make yesterday. Uh, that doesn't change the fact that being able to make more bricks is good. And we should not call, you know, good things bad just because of, I don't know, jealousy, fear. I'm not sure exactly what it is that drives this, uh, this fear of good things, but, uh, I don't like. Yeah, no, you're, you're totally right. Um, I will clarify my position because what I was trying to get at is, um, it's, it's just, it's just not even the, in the realm of possible questions anymore to say AI is going to steal our jobs because yeah, because there's so much actually so much work happening. To do, so. Exactly. That's so that's, that's kind of like the first easy, quick response to the commie nonsense. But I totally agree with you. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I don't really care if the McDonald's order takers lose their jobs. I don't care if cashiers lose their jobs. If they are not capable of doing anything else, in my mind, they don't deserve to have a job anyway. Um, <laughs> well, it, I, well the, no, the simple fact is if they cannot get a job, if they cannot somehow provide value to their fellow man, then they don't – value has to be earned. And if you're not able to earn value, that's a statement yeah, of value. Yeah, well, but it, like just um, because – guys, just like at because, a deeper level, at a deeper level, the, the goodness the, – the job is only a fraction of the goodness that is the, the cashiering, right? The, the nature of economics that's not subsidized, like the, age, the nature of non-subsidized economics is that any wage that you draw – is only a fraction of the goodness of the equation. The entire goodness of the equation is the service that you're providing and the way that it uplifts other people. And so people value that. And so if what we're saying is that, you know, we can suddenly provide all of that value without having to use a human being's life to do it. I mean, think about this. We are lying, we are putting down the life of a human being, 60% of it, let's say 50% of it, 60% of it, uh, in order to make sure that groceries can get accounted for correctly. You're yeah, going to tell me pretty, it's a bad thing that, that doesn't have to happen anymore, right? Like, no, that's yeah. a great thing. The groceries can now account for themselves. Awesome. That's good. You know what, I Isaiah, like you're to... starting to sound like a commie because you're saying... <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, okay, but here's, I'm gonna sound hey, here's the thing. I, I know where you're going with that. Elitist. I know where you're going with that. It sounds like... It, it, so... The reason that I think conservatives have this reaction is because they start to picture some like commie utopia where everyone, everything is free and the state just like distributes everything to us. And um, it's, they, they start to picture Marxist um, yeah. picture of the perfect humanity where everything is cheap and free and we all have equal access. And I would say Marx wasn't wrong in reaching for a, a time in which goods were cheap. In fact, capitalism is the primary driver of goods becoming cheap. So it's kind of funny that we've like lost the ability to to see the good of like cheap goods and even to some extent equality. And and, uh, you know, I'm not one to harp about equality, but the fact is the there is an equality that exists now that didn't exist 200 years ago. And it's entirely a capitalist thing and that is. For the most part, if you live in the United States, regardless of your level of wealth, you can live a healthy life. You can 
you know, eat food and you can drink water that's not going to make you sick and you can live in a shelter. And that is a, pretty much an entirely capitalist reality. It's just because goods and services have gotten so incredibly cheap, such a small portion of, of human existence has to go into supporting them that there's this like baseline level of equality that's lifted. So I think conservatives see that baseline is going is like skyrocketing, which I think it will um, even you know, far beyond the level it is today, you'll be able to sort of live um, with a, a much smaller portion of work. And again, like, that's good. There, there's nothing that's, wealth is good. That's what it comes down to. Wealth is good. Yeah. Frodo, do you have some last thoughts on this before we move on to move on to our last thing? Yeah. Yeah, just a couple. I wanted to circle back to something that you actually said, Kip. Um, you said that your demographic point is the easiest sort of first-tier response to people complaining about AI destroying jobs. Um, and I actually – it's a bit of a nitpick, but I do want to um, challenge that because I think it's actually much more important to say what Isaiah is saying is that, that good things are good because I think that's one of the causes of the failure of right-wing and conservative movements over time is that they always choose the, um, they always try to pander, basically. They always choose like the most, what they perceive as social, the most socially acceptable reasons for whatever they're trying to defend. Like they talk about the social utility of billionaires and that's why we shouldn't tax them more or, or, you know, production. Uh, yes. I love, uh, we, you know, we should, we should, like we price gouging actually, too price gouging or whatever actually allows supplies of goods into difficult areas. And so that's why price gouging should be allowed. And the fact is that instead of making all these pandering arguments, we should simply speak the truth at the most fundamental level of justice. And that is that we shouldn't steal from billionaires just because they're rich and we're envious. AI is a good thing because good things are good. And price gouging is a completely morally acceptable behavior because it's a free exchange of goods and services. Preach it and end it there and Preach stop it, doing all this pearl clutching um, attempts to make the truth um, acceptable because based on like socially acceptable yes. arguments. Yes. Just. Who cares? Who cares if billionaires have utility to society? Like, honestly, I don't I do not care whether or not Jeff Bezos has had a positive impact society or not. It's wrong to steal from him. Yeah, no. You yeah. know what? Uh, I will I will accept the criticism stated as noted on the record. <laughs> um, okay. Didn't intend it, but yeah, I appreciate you. appreciate you calling me. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know it's a, I know it's a bit of a nitpick. Um, and then one um, other thing, if I could really quickly, sorry, I feel like I've been speaking way too much making up for last episode, but uh, just on the whole subject of, you know, wages and people not being able to deserve um, much in terms of wealth. I remember a person posting online about how they, I think they lived in Montreal and were being paid like $16 an hour as a barista or something. And they pointed out that a parking space in Montreal made like 20 or $28 an hour. Um, and they were like, I make less money <laughs> than a parking space. And they were trying to posit it as, Oh, this shows that our, I'm a human being. And I make less than a square of pavement. And they're trying to posit it as, oh, this is some great economic um, crime. And what they were really pointing out, ironically, is how worthless of a human being they were. Because they, as a human being, with all the mental and physical capacities that come with that, were unable 
to deserve more <laughs> value from your fellow man than a you oh know my gosh. square of paper. <laughs> Dude, I forgot about oh, this. So one here, really, that is top yeah. quality. I had forgotten that. I oh man, I forgot about that one yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh man, boy got outcompeted by a piece of pavement. Oh, and he was posting yeah. it. All. That's that's a fat. Rate. Hey, I said just a quick uh, a quick technical note. Your mic keeps cutting off quite before you've quite finished what you're saying. Oh, okay, good to know. I'll try switching off Wi-Fi. My Wi-Fi is not great here. Um, well, I'll, I'll jump into our, our last, um, topic and I'll just, I'll monologue here for a few minutes and just outline, um, the, the three paths that I see to wealth. Um, and this is really, really broad categories and I'll stop qualifying and just get into it. The, these are graduated by lowest risk and lowest potential upside. Um, at one through highest risk, highest potential upside at three. So number one is trading your time um, at the highest possible dollar amount per hour or per year or whatever. Um, and investing excess income in minor passive assets, whether that be real estate or dividend stocks or or anything of that nature. Um, that's kind of the, the path that um, everybody took 50 years ago is just get a job, climb the corporate ladder, make good money, save it, invest it, and you'll be a millionaire when you retire. Um, and there are still some jobs that you can take uh, and jobs that you can get relatively easily without getting $400,000 into student loan debt to acquire the position where you can do this kind of thing. I'm thinking um, being a programmer is obviously the top, top um, most obvious one. Sales um, is another one. And there are a bunch of others, but that's, that's kind of number one. Number two is being self-employed in high value markets. So, what I mean by that is um, finding something to do that you are particularly and uniquely good at doing and can sell very well. You have to be able to do both. And then doing that and capturing a niche of the market that is, that is unfulfilled. And if you do this, you are effectively married to your position if you're doing it by yourself. If you start it with somebody else and you can hand it off to them after a few years, um, it, there's a chance of doing this passively, but it's it's a bit of a unicorn to be able to do this kind of thing passively. Generally speaking, this is kind of you pick your career and you stick with it until you're dead. But you can you can make decent, well above average income doing this, particularly if you uh, didn't go to college uh, and aren't interested in doing so. The third and highest risk is um, building a traditional business. Um, and and in this respect, I, I, I mean anything from um, building a SaaS startup, building a new product that inventing a product and bringing it to market, um, any business that has 
you know, ballpark a $5 million gross revenue per year or, or higher. Um, and there could be any number of exits. You could hire somebody to replace you as the CEO or CTO or however, however you fit into the founder paradigm, or you could exit the company. But those are, those are kind of the three primary ways to wealth that I see the three pathways and you can blend these obviously, but um, what do you guys think? Do you think I'm capturing the majority of the paths to wealth? Do you have additional categories? I, mean, I, think, you're, you're, I think you're missing the most obvious one, which is getting run over by a leg. You're right. My bad. All included next. <laughs> getting run over by what? <laughs> getting run over by Alexis. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. A classic. Uh, there's the even more obvious one, uh, EBT. Uh, but <laughs> nice. I would also qualify your second category, Kip, and say that, um, well, I guess it's not even a qualification. It's just another another facet of it. Uh so it, it does come with a fair share of challenges, but it can also potentially, you can't do it passively, but you can potentially get a fair amount of time and maybe even location freedom from it. So even if you're a sort of like a small business owner or even just an independent contractor, you do have a greater discretion over your schedule than an employee. Yeah, it seems like that second path is actually maybe the least understood one. And I would say it's it's most often conflated with the third category. Um, I, I hesitate, and I was saying this in the group chat, like I, hes I hesitate to even call it a small business because in my mind, a business is, is something that exists independent, you know, of you that, that can be operated upon and you go and you operate it or operate upon it. And uh, the, the second category is not really like that. It's more like a, an, op an apparatus around yourself that allows you to capture the majority of the value chain around the service that you're delivering to the customer. So if you work for a company in category one, let's say you're maybe capturing a quarter, if you're lucky, like that's a really good ratio is capturing a quarter of the value you're providing to the market. So if you make $200,000 as a programmer, it probably means you brought in $800,000 of revenue or more to your employer. And uh, going independent is a way to capture, capture, you know, much larger, a swath of that value chain, but um, people conflate it with the third category. And I think it's, it's much more like the first one where you're, you're sort of an employee, um, you know, self-employed is a good way to say it, but um, you're also the shareholder at the same time. And so you have this larger bite of, uh, of the market that you're able to capture. And um, I, I think it's a pretty powerful wealth building tool, as long as you aren't thinking about it, like a, like a category three activity, which, um, you know, I think this is, I think the reason that we're both kind of talking about this one is that I think, uh, we have all made this mistake before <laughs> of, of conflating category two and category three activities. Yeah. And, I, I, um, you can, you can really screw up a good category two thing by thinking of it as ain't that the truth. Yeah, no, I, man, I think how did you get that insight? <laughs> you know, let's not talk about time. Um, <laughs> um, no, I want to I want to jump up and down a bit on your distinction there because I think that's a really really good way to think about it. So, what you're saying, I'm just going to 
kind of phrase it slightly differently and jump in if I'm saying anything incorrectly, but a category one activity where you have a job, you're capturing maybe up to 25% of the value you're providing to the marketplace. And, and the reason you're capturing 25% rather than a higher percentage is because you're offloading all of the risk of the value you provide or don't provide to your employer, right? And so exactly. in exchange for an extra 30, 40, 50% of, of that value, um, or I mean, in reality, it's actually the full, full 75%. You're exchanging the access to 75% of the value you provide to the market for security. Exactly. And, yeah. and security and, and, and also, security and infrastructure. Yeah, I was going to say infrastructure yeah. shouldn't be discounted either because in reality, the, the company is almost always not going to keep the 75%. They're going to keep, you know, if it's a really high margin business, uh, you know, a, a good portion of that 75%, but most businesses will, will actually capture a very small portion of that remaining. Yeah. And it's going to be spent on infrastructure that allows you to do the value capture in the first place. So sales and marketing is the most common one. If you're a programmer, sales and marketing, tooling, equipment, right. If you're a programmer, the sales apparatus of the company you're programming for actually puts the value in place to allow you to operate on it. And uh, you have to do that yourself if you're independent. So the infrastructure shouldn't be, shouldn't be discounted. Um, But yeah, the, the fact remains that if you can, if you can figure out how to do it and provide that infrastructure for yourself in a lightweight way, you can theoretically capture another, you know, good portion of that 75% for yourself. And, you know, that's, that's what I see out in the open market, in my own industries, people who are, you know, on their own and can make two, three times more. And then they have to accept the downside risk. Like you're saying, they'll go six months without a contract because they're not working for, for a company. Yeah. I think, um, I think at least in my experience, a good rule of thumb for anybody listening and interested in being self-employed is if you're, if you're really good at what you do, uh, you can expect to make two to two and a half X, um, self-employed as you would as an employee. So even though you're going from in theory, capturing, 25% of the market value of your work as an employee to a hundred percent as self-employed, you're really likely to only realize a total of 50 to 60% best case scenario. And sometimes it's going to be worse than that. You're, you're going to have bad months. You're going to have bad years. So, but on average, if you're really good at what you do and you stick it out, I think uh, in a category, category two self-employed activity, you can, uh, plan on making two to two and a half X what you would in the open market as an employee. So yeah. That's kind of, I think that's, that's kind of what I would, I think it's figure. a pretty reasonable benchmark. And then you can, but you can optimize higher than that. Like your initial statement was if you're good, if you're really good at what you do, you can probably make two to two and a half. And I would say if you're really good at what you do and you're good at selling what you do, then maybe you yeah. can plan on three X. And if you're able to do some basic delegation so you can hire a secretary and not worry about all the paperwork that comes through, maybe it's 3.5. So there's all these like add-ons and ways that you can optimize and, and broaden that market exposure. I would, uh, yeah, I would push back against that because I don't want to get people's hopes up. 
I think that that's probably the case for an industry like software. But if you get into boots on the ground industries, um, manufacturing, auto repair, construction, yard yard maintenance, industries like that, you're you're gonna be hard pressed to push back push past two and a half X. But that's that is my opinion. So take yeah. it for what it's worth. And I don't know as much about those from the category two perspective. So you might be right about that. There might be some scale uh, scale issues. Yeah. Well, uh, we wanted to call it a call it an evening around eight o'clock. So, uh, Isaiah Fro, do you have any closing thoughts? Nope, no closing thoughts for me. And I actually got to run. So, have a good night, boys. Sweet. I think we should. Uh, I think we should uh, make sure that we cover the stuff that we missed at a later a later date. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds All right, great. Respect. All right. Night, Cheers, boys. boys. Good stuff.